Hi, uh, I'm Alexandra. I am here with my lovely co-host, David, and uh, we would like to welcome you back to the Caring Too Much mini-series on education, episode two. We understand that this episode is uh, a little bit delayed, and uh, all, all we're going to say is I'm sure you understand, start, back to school is never uh, an easy time for anyone, but now we are we are here and we are going to dive into some more of the the issues surrounding our education system. It feels like it's been a while. And it has been. <laughs> it has, it really has, but great to to be here. It's ironic that our delay was in the middle of a specific series, but I'm I'm excited to be back cuz this is probably one of the topics that I um, care the most about when we're talking about like current issues. So I know you've got a lot that sort of kind of got cut from the last, the end of last episode that is now becoming the start of this episode. So I have had an interest in the um, environment of education for, for quite a long time. Actually, I remember when I was in ninth or 10th grade, I had had a whole thing. I was fixated on trying to get my high school to install blue light bulbs in all of the rooms instead of yellow light bulbs because I, I read somewhere. I mean, I didn't read somewhere. This is true. This is a fact that blue light is better for awareness and concentration, particularly in an education context because it's more like sunlight during the middle of the day rather than uh, more yellow light, which is like sunlight at the end of the day when you're getting ready to go to sleep. The, the point here is I have, have been passionate about the environment we place ourselves in to learn for a long time. Um, and I'm sure your, your school was thrilled to have you be so passionate, right? My school did not listen to me <laughs> even a little bit. Yeah, color me surprised. Color, color, color me, yellow light bulbs. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the nice things about my psychology degree so far is that you end up learning a lot of things about how people learn. Um, you also end up with a lot of psych professors saying, yeah, we know this is more or less the worst environment imaginable for learning, but we have to do it this way. So uh, there's there's some issues there. We all know there's some issues. Lots of them. I mean, I think like that, I don't think we're going to focus on like this big of a picture just because again, like I, I feel like we've said it every episode, it would become a whole its own podcast on its own. But ultimately the problem with education is that like, we have to go to school because we have to get a good paying job. Otherwise we're going to die because everything costs money. Even the like human, uh, what, what, what are the, what's the categorization that like the, UN has on like the the things that are essential for human life, like water, food, shelter, whatever. Like, I don't really get why we have that classification if it doesn't mean anything. Like they can still charge us exorbitant prices for the necessities of life. Anyway, this is all to say that realistically, like education these days is all just a vehicle to get a good paying job, which like sucks. Not only um, to get a good paying job, but to keep kids out of the way while their parents are at work. Um I mean, yeah, young for certainly in the younger years of education, like I, I'm more thinking like post-secondary. Oh, like, true. They're like, it's a factory for 
workers, right? Like that's, it's basically pumping out, you know, what are the skills you need to succeed in, in your field as opposed to like, you know, the, the general, I think spirit of education, which should be more like, um, what do you want to learn or what do you not know enough about or, or what is something you would like to have your mind changed about? And you, you know, dive into that topic that is kind of a background for, I think a lot of the things we might talk about. We understand that that is the ultimate problem, but seeing as this is a conversation about um, education and not dismantling like capitalism, um, we're going to focus on like some, maybe some smaller things, but we do know that ultimately it all comes from that, you know, problem that we've all got to become productive workers one day. Yeah. Yeah. Make education. money for the man. <laughs> uh, make money for the girl boss. Yeah. The, for the man and for the girl boss, that is <laughs> the, the, the two genders under capitalism. <laughs> But yeah, education for its own sake is absolutely uh, like very, very rare. Um, and I think with that, this is probably also a separate conversation, but with that comes a huge amount of pressure on people, uh, on students. So instead of being able to focus on learning anything, even incidentally, um, you end up kind of drive, driving yourself right to the brink because you have to get the best grades and do a million extracurriculars and get scholarships and um, make sure that your education will pay off, make sure it'll be profitable, which is, yeah, like taking, taking a business model to education. Yeah. I mean, like, aside from the fact that while you are, you know, being educated to, you know, pay for the rest of your life, you also have to pay for your life while you're being educated, which just throws a whole other thing. And I've, I've ranted to many of people at the university about how, um, that is like, it sucks so much from so many students, um, obviously impacting more, um, lower income students, um, than it would, um, a higher income student. But like, I mean, even right now, like I, I have to, I have two jobs to be able to like afford living downtown and you know, eating and whatever. Um, there have been times where I've had three jobs, like while I'm in class and it, yeah, it definitely takes, takes away from like, you know, when I've had a lesson that I'm like, Oh, that's really interesting. I could learn more about that or I could go to work and get paid. Like there's not always the ability to choose both. And I do, obviously you have to sacrifice the thing that isn't, uh, mandatory or whatever. Right. So I would argue that most of my computer science degree was me ignoring the things that I actually enjoyed in computer science, uh, which was, you know, more along the lines of whatever, this isn't a computer science podcast. Um, and it's also been a while and I've forgotten a lot. Um, but you know, like I would, there'd be things that I would be learning and I'd be like, that's really cool, but it was only a really small part of the course. And if I put more energy into that, I would lose out on, you know, the bigger parts that I needed to actually get grades for, which I need to graduate and get a job. Um, and as we all know who, well, all of those who know me know that I ended up dropping out of the program because I was just like, this is not fulfilling me at all, but I wouldn't say that I'm not interested in computer science. I just was not interested in the computer science degree and not specifically, you know, anything bad about the one at 
X university. Like, I don't think I would be interested in any computer science degree because all of them are trying to teach you like the skills you need to become super profitable as a computer scientist, computer engineer, whatever. And, um, those were not the parts of computer science I was interested in. So ultimately I dropped out, even though there were things that were interesting, there were things that I wanted to do. And I still do, I do computer science in some of my jobs in the last couple months and years. Um, and I enjoy it. It actually makes me feel really cool. I'm like, Oh, I know computer science and I'm surrounded by people who don't. It's like, it's, it's cool. Um, but because of that, like education mindset of you are here to become the most productive worker possible. I was like, I'm not enjoying this. And it, it sucks because I'm sure if it's happening to me, it's happening to lots of people. Mm-hmm. And even, uh, even aside or on top of the push to, uh, ignore the things that you're actually interested in and focus just on this very specific set of um, more traditionally productive or profitable um, parts of your field. There's a, a documented phenomenon where if you introduce uh, an external motivating factor to something, to an activity that is already intrinsically motivating, that actually chips away at the intrinsic uh, reward of that activity. There's the, I, I believe the study that was done uh, on this actually was, was about, it was with young children, like preschool children, um, coloring. And one of the groups of children just colored. They had a great time. The other group of children were given like medals for, or like certificates. They were, they were given rewards, you know, for how well they colored. Um, and the second group who were rewarded for, for how well they were coloring when they were given the opportunity to color just for fun again, a lot of them didn't uh, because you get taught that this is not something that's fun. It is not something that you can do at your own pace. Um, it, there's a standard you have to live up to. And that, that makes it surprise, like not as much fun, not as rewarding. Um, and I think probably every student has this in at least some aspect you know, well, I, I think that's why extracurriculars for people who get involved with them. And I don't mean the traditional extracurricular, like, you know, you get involved in your student council or the equivalent, you know, um, although obviously if you know me, I did that. Um, but you know, the extracurriculars, like where you volunteer with the school newspaper and you design a graphic for them, or you, um, get involved with the, like, a great example from computer science, where I saw a lot of people like do things that I was like, otherwise like, Oh, I don't really know if you want to be here or whatever were hackathons. Cause, and hackathons, obviously like, you know, there's prizes if you, you do good and stuff. But I think a lot of people, except for the top students in the class kind of enter the hackathon as just like, and I know some of my friends did this as just like a, Hey, we're going to screw around and have some fun. And people would be more productive. People had more fun, people, whatever, when it was like, I'm choosing to do this. This isn't for a mark. This isn't, there might be a reward, but it's not why I'm doing it. And I I mean, I think that's like such a important thing. And I wish we could find ways to, because like, you know, we're saying all this work, whatever you want to call it, complaining or criticizing. We both get why it is the way it is. Like a professor can't mark, you know, a million creative assignments. It's so much easier to just run it through a Scantron because then, 
they don't have to spend like for every hour that you would have spent on an assignment. If it's not a standardized assignment, that prof has to spend probably like, I'm sure there's a function of like for every hour you spend, they have to spend 10 minutes grading it or something like that. Right. Add that up for a whole class. Like, I mean, you've sat in, I'm sure if you're listening, whatever, I know Alex, you've sat in like some lecture halls, 500 students. Plus I cannot imagine, even if you had an army of TAs, Right. Like it's, it's, I get, it's not feasible, but I wish there was a way to, to work those like, like I almost want to call it like a choose your own adventure in a learning path or whatever, like Mm -hmm. into, into courses. And I know there are some ways like small ways or whatever, but it's like one lesson is a here, you can learn your own kind of thing. Um, and, and also not like, um, uh, suffer like the, or, but I wish that was possible without making it impossible for the profs or the, the markers to, you know, get things marked and back to students. Yeah. And like the further you go into the root causes here, um, it all comes back to the same thing. You know, we need grades because we need a metric of how productive we are in school, because that gives people to self- something to look at, you know, to guess how productive we'll be in a workplace environment. Um But definitely part of the problem is that education is under-resourced. You know, if tuition wasn't so expensive, people wouldn't have to work two, three jobs to pay their way through school. If if there were more professors hired and when like not on short-term unstable assistant lecturer contracts, but in actual like secure jobs with benefits, then we could have smaller class sizes and professors would be able to give students more, um, more individual attention. You know, if we had people developing curricula who had the time to go through it and think what's going to be best for the student rather than having to crank out, you know, 10 different things in one night and just copy paste. Well, like about that curriculum thing, it's still shot. Like I remember I found it in first year, like my first, first year. So seven years ago that it might've been my second year that like profs are required on their own, like their own volition, their own, whatever. That's the only way that courses get updated or even get created is a prof having the initiative on their own to say, this course isn't working anymore. Here's how we have to change it. Or this course is completely irrelevant. We need to replace it with, you know, this there's no one at the, you know, I mean, maybe there's one person or something, but largely there's no one that's doing that work of evaluating classes, making sure that content, like it, that seems to me like such a no brainer, like every faculty, if not every program, you know, maybe there could be one person assigned to like a a handful of programs and just like their job just to be like, run like sitting on a couple classes um have like conversations with like like do an exit survey with students coming out of those classes like just every year like just a google form that gets sent out they you know this there's a person whose job it is to kind of track and gather students feedback and then bring it to like the faculty because obviously if this person isn't a faculty I, i know that they can't create the courses but it's it's like unless students make a huge bunch of noise or a faculty on their own initiative goes off and changes and fixes a course, nothing gets done. Like I remember when I was in computer science, there were some courses that hadn't been touched since the nineties. I started in computer science in 2016, 2017. Especially in such a rapidly evolving field. That's, 
I mean, that's ridiculous. That, that obviously it wasn't all the courses. It was a small handful. There were like, and, and it wasn't the mandatory courses. So like, you know, I made it seem a little bit worse than it actually was there for drama who, <laughs> uh, sue me. Um, but like, yeah, like the fact that there's courses that are like actively being taken, like, even though they're not mandatory, they're electives and, you know, everyone kind of knew like, oh, if you're taking that course, you're going to learn something outdated. Like just the fact that that was well known among students and, and among staff, like everyone was like, yeah, that course, like I would sit in the faculty council meetings where all the profs who were in charge of the computer science department, I would sit there and we would be like, oh yeah, that course is awful. And then move on because there were just no resources because someone would have to. And I mean, I'm sure that there was a prof who was slacking off, especially in the computer science department. I'm, I would name names if I had graduated already, but there's some profs who could pull their weight a little more, but largely, you know, it, it is unfair to ask a prof to on top of all the things that they already expected to do for no extra money, no extra time, like whatever, say like, Oh, also make a whole new course because it, it's a lot of work to make a new course, editing a course, maybe a different story. Maybe profs should be expected to do that, but creating new courses, like coming up, especially in fields that are changing so fast, like, like Alex, like just like saying like that it's, it's just under-resourced is like absolutely correct. Like there's just not enough people power. There's not enough money. There's not enough interest, all of these different resources. It's there's, there just isn't because I guess we rather spend money on other things in education, which never really made sense to me. I don't, education should be like that fallback where all of the leftover money goes because the education is literally the future, maybe splitting it with climate initiatives. Like I, I do not ever understand when we're like, we need to save money. Let's cut education like that. Yeah. Worms for brains. That is a worms for brains decision. Like you are taking money away from the future of our society. Like that, that's what education is. I mean, and, and for, I know there's a lot of arguments about like, you know, government spending, the economy, whatever, but it is, it is well-documented that for every additional dollar budgeted for education, you see returns of on like many fold of multiple dollars of, of economic growth from that, even if that's your only concern. Um, but to, to, to kind of, um, I, I just want to say one more thing with regards to uh, professors and education workers generally. And this is something that happens in many uh, different levels of education, like all different levels of education, um, all like many different jurisdictions all over the place um, where there is a also shout out to, to David Graeber, Bullshit Jobs. That is where I am getting this information from you should read it it's a good book um but there is a societal backlash almost against people who have intrinsically fulfilling jobs uh, because so many of us have jobs that are essentially meaningless and don't serve any real purpose in the world and and, and we do that to make lots of money um, of you cogs that are sitting in a cubicle, we're talking to you. <laughs> Just kidding. Obviously, we've both been in this situation too. Yeah, and like, like it sucks. No one likes to have a job that makes them feel dead inside. But a lot of people, you know, they 
not 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 just individuals. You know, we societally reconcile the fact that so many jobs are meaningless but high-paying by turning around and doing the other thing with meaningful jobs. So for education workers, healthcare workers, uh, people in meaningful fields, we'll look at them and be like, your job means something. Why do you deserve to get paid well on top of that? Um, and I think that's where a lot of the argument of teachers making too much money when all they're getting really is like a livable wage, a pension, and still writing curricula on their own time. I, I mean, I also think just from my own experience, uh, like, obviously, if people know me, like, there's no doubt that I'm pro-union. However, there is no way that anyone will ever convince me that at least in Ontario, the school system that I spent 12 no, 14 years of my life in the Catholic school system. So I'll be very specific. The York Catholic District School Board, there are teachers who do not deserve protection and are getting off with doing nothing. There are. And I think that you come across that like one bad teacher at your school and it just makes your child's life awful. And then people are like, you know, they're making, because it's usually the teachers who have been around for like 30, 50 years teaching um, and just kind of are like, I'm just sitting around for like, there was a teacher who straight up in my high school said, I'm just sitting around until I can like get the next level of my pension or something like that. And he was like, like he straight up would tell us, I don't want to be here. So it's like, I think there's a little bit of that as well, that because there's so many teachers, there's going to be a couple who are shitty. And then as soon as anyone encounters like a shitty person in a well-paid job, I think going along with that theory that you were just saying, it makes it that much easier to kind of like vilify all of the teachers because of course, 99% of teachers I'm sure are putting in way more hours than they're getting paid for are doing just, especially just from my own experience as like being an RA, like you just, don't see so many of the things that go like go on behind the scenes when you are supporting young people, right? Like you have no idea how many hours they're basically acting as a counselor, right? And this goes for props too. I'd say probably less so than like an elementary school teacher, but educators are putting in work. And for anyone who is just like, Cause I know as a kid, I was like, screw these teachers who are like doing nothing. And I, you know, I thought that it was like 50% of teachers that are like sitting around doing nothing that it's, it's just that, I don't know if there's a word for that phenomenon or whatever, but like that, you know, the small, the small groups always seem to make the most of a mess, like whether it be the silent majority or the, whatever they vocal call themselves. Minority. Yeah. Like the vocal minority, but but not necessarily vocal in the sense with teachers. It was just like, I'm impacted so much more by a bad teacher than I am by a teacher who just does their job. You know what that is? That is the availability heuristic, actually. I, was gonna, uh, I knew there was something more complicated. I was like, it's when someone does a bad job, it stands out so much more than them doing a good job. Like, like the other people doing a good job, it doesn't show as much as the person who's doing a bad job. Exactly. I think we that's really clear with teachers. Yeah, we pay more attention to, to unusual events, which makes us think they're a lot more common than they are. That, yeah. So, like, I think that's also playing a part of it because I can, 
I could definitely list all of my bad teachers that I've had. It's only like five or six in, you know, my elementary high school time. God help me. If you asked me to list every single teacher that I've had though, I, I couldn't, so many have just been forgotten because they were just doing their job. You know, they were average or, or good, you know? Um, and I think that's something that we should be aware of when, especially right now in the pandemic, you know, bringing it out of elementary school into back into university, <laughs> like in the pandemic, like you have no idea how hard most profs, most instructors, like I was, you know, involved in a lot of things last year. Um, and so I was doing research on like learning and all this sort of stuff. And so many profs are trying so hard and it just, the situation right now, especially with the pandemic sucks, but even before the pandemic, which is, you know, this episode isn't necessarily about the pandemic and education. It, profs are doing so much with so little, like when we're talking about what the government is realistically giving post-secondary education, uh, post-secondary institutions right now, like in terms of funding and uh, like protecting them from certain problems that are coming up. Like, like recently the government just threw all of us through the, the student choice initiative thing here in Ontario. That was a nightmare for a lot of like places, like what didn't super affect academics, but there was for a little bit of question because they were so um, vague about the policy up front. <laughs> like there was no policy. It was just, we're going to stop Marxist organizations on campus or whatever it was that Doug Ford said. Um, and for those of you who don't have the background, the, the student choice initiative was um, basically the, the province saying all these student fees that you pay alongside your tuition, including, you know, student union dues, the fees that go to on-campus newspapers, radio um, activities, all of that is now not only optional, it's an opt-in system, I believe. So if you don't actively... No? It was universities kind of had some leeway in how much of an opt-in versus how much of like, if it was more of an opt-in or more of an opt-out, but the point more just was like, it, it showed such a, um, I think lack of awareness, lack of understanding and lack of appreciation for all of the things that are not like strictly sitting in a lecture, getting lectured to by a professor, like, cause a lot of the things that were also potentially on the chopping block and some of them did end up becoming optional were at certain, depending which university you went to or college was it colleges too. It was maybe it was just universities because that's a separate act. Um, you know, like there were things like career services or like the, 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 the learning services that complement classes those, some of those things were becoming like, were potentially being cut or did end up getting cut because of that policy. And I, I think that it's like, that's just putting so much more work on professors in certain cases, because it's like, oh, well, we've just cut all of these extra services that help students outside of classes. And so ultimately some of that would have, you know, um, when students don't have, you know, this place to turn to that they normally would have, well, now it's like a prof's expectation or a, a TA's expectation to like know the answers or to be able to provide that support. And that's just one of the many examples of the ways that the government or even our own post-secondary institutions have cut things that just like are not in the spirit of education. Like it's education is about like here, here are so many things you could explore, or at least it should be, in my opinion. Like, 
look at all these different opportunities outside of the classroom. Look at all of these different cool classes you could take. Like when they were cutting, uh, I can't remember what they cut. They, they cut tuition or they, they did that tuition freeze um, a couple years ago in Ontario as well, which resulted in a lot of specialty classes being cut or class sizes being like doubled in a lot of cases. And it was because just it like, didn't, it didn't come along with any additional government money for the universities. It yeah. was universities. You have to cut students tuition by, by this much. Um, we're not giving you any more money when you're already like a lot of universities already were in such a, a difficult position. Ontario universities are not well subsidized. Yeah. You know, if you look at, Across Canada, since education is provincial, uh, it does vary quite widely from province to province. But comparing a, a, a province like Ontario with a province like Quebec right next door, I know I always talk about Quebec, but it's a really good example. It's a perfect example because it also leads into next week's topic about how they got lower. <laughs> exactly. But in Quebec, tuition fees are some of the lowest in the country. Um, and I mean, I've been looking at, at law schools recently and to do a four year law degree in Quebec um, would cost me for the whole degree only slightly more than one year of a law degree at, uh, at our very own University of Toronto here in Ontario. I do not claim the University of Toronto. I'm not saying that's our very own. <laughs> our, 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 our very local university yes. of toronto and see it from my balcony <laughs> um and and so much of that difference um you know yeah we'll go into the causes of it next time but but a lot of that the difference in how much money students need to to give the institution comes from how how much of a gap is left by government funding yeah uh, and i mean we're not going to sit here and pretend that we've analyzed every single line item of the Ontario budget and we have the exact answers of what needs to be cut. And that's how they're going to, you know, provide more education funding. Obviously not, it's a, I've solved it personally. Okay. Well, <laughs> for me then, um, like, like, you know, obviously it's hard and we like, like get it, but also like, I don't get it because I've seen some things that get funding instead of education and I'm, and, and it's just like, there's not a good reason there. Cause like I can understand, you know, there's, there are tough decisions that need to be made by politicians because even though, even the ones with like, you know, the best whatever's at heart, it's not like we can just completely switch, you know, and that's the reason why we're not talking about, you know, capitalism like too much in this episode is because even though we know that that's the problem, that's not going away tomorrow. Like we've got at least a couple more years in the best, best, best case scenario. <laughs> just, just a couple. And I mean, realistically, it's probably never going away. So um, I just, I think it's, it, there's just some very clear things that are like not as important as education when it comes to what our funding should be going towards as like a province, like healthcare and education are the top two things provinces are responsible for. How are those two things not like just super well-funded? Like it's, mm -hmm. those are the top two, like how could you have, you can't have a society without good healthcare and then great, you know, 
people teaching the next generation. Like it's what you don't have anything without those two. And somehow those are the ones that are always talked about getting cut every election cycle. And it's like, first of all, let's get it right out of the way. Some people need to be paying a lot more of their fair share in taxes and, you know, towards the social, you know, good or whatever. Um, but there's also lots of things that we're putting towards, like putting money towards that. It's just like, really, that's more important than education. I remember a couple of years ago, it was right around the OSAP cuts. And so people were like, oh, you cut OSAP to give money to this. And it was like horse racing or something. It was like $10 million given by the Ford government to like horse racing subsidies. I, I Don't quote me on it. It was something along those lines, though. And I was just like, what? Like, the, uh, like how is that? Like, yeah, obviously, I'm sure that it helped some people in the horse raising business, but. And even if you're not directly taking the money from education, giving it to horse racing, like, how do you do those two things at the same time and not reconsider? Yeah, it's just like, I I don't know how, like, honestly, with the state that we're, it's currently in, like, there's, you know, like, there's a million different figures that we could throw around. But if we're looking at, like, elementary and high schools, I want to say there's, like, is it hundreds of millions of dollars of backlogs of repairs that aren't being done because there's no funding for it. Like, I know it's a big number. All I Um, know is my, uh, my high school when I was in 12th grade needed a new roof, but there were so many buildings in the TDSB that needed new roofs and that had needed new roofs for decades, but just hadn't, there was no funding allocated until they were literally like crumbling. Um, And there were so many buildings in that state that they could not have them all repaired while students were not in school. So my school's roof uh, was redone during my, I want to say my second semester of grade 12. Um, so we were, we were at school wearing masks before it was popular because the <laughs> asphalt fumes were giving people like migraine headaches. Um, one of my friends, a couple of my friends, I think, took a, a physics exam in an upstairs classroom. Um, Don't tell me it was open to the sky. It wasn't open to the sky, oh, but there okay. were ceiling tiles falling down as the exam was being written because they were they were hammering right above it. Well, I was going to say, like, yeah, like I remember just in my high school and I'm pretty sure in my elementary school, it was just like if a ceiling tile fell, it wasn't getting replaced. It was in, like something got broken unless it was glass it was like well it'll do like unless it was functionally can't like the school like doors would break and it'd be like well i guess we don't have that door for a couple weeks or or a year or whatever like there's just so much money that is needed to bring our education system up like i I don't know how anyone is able to successfully run a campaign at like at all with any cuts to education on their platform. It, it just, it is anyone who has been through, and I know this is the problem. Anyone who has been through the public school system knows that more money is needed. <laughs> and I know the problem is that a lot of the people uh, go to private schools and then they're just like, I want the money to go to my private schools because it was better for my kids, but that's a different problem. Um, I, I do also quickly want to say, I think any campaign, any party, that's that's a really important idea here because 
there, there is a lot of blame very rightfully placed on um, the conservatives in Ontario for cutting education. They do that. I am not, not disputing they do that very bad. But um, before Doug Ford was in office, Ontario's liberal government, which was in power for a very long time, um, also progressively cut education and left those roofs unrepaired, all of that stuff. You well, don't even, have- I, I would say even like, like more like than that, it was first, it was Dalton McGinty as premier. Kathleen Wynne was the education secretary who did all those, who was part of those cuts and then got elected anyway. Right. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't even like, Oh, you know, it's just, I'm voting for the liberal, like we, like people voted in the exact person responsible and you're right. It was the liberals or the conservatives. They're both doing it. And if you don't pay very close attention all of the time, it's very easy to, to miss who exactly is doing the, uh, these things. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people who voted for Kathleen Wynne didn't know she was, you know, specifically responsible for education. You know, it's not but, like she went out on the campaign trail being like, I'm going to take money away from schools. Like, <laughs> they're smarter than that. But with any problem like this, Always. It doesn't get to this point unless there's been a very like a long run of neglect. Um, education, this is true for healthcare. This is true for like a lot of things you can point to. And it's really easy to have a government that you don't like and blame them for all of it. But you like there's there's always a history as well. Oh no, and I'm like like honestly, like I mean, I'm sure that. Like it's, it's just the nature of the way that our world works these days. Like I'm sure that, you know, the NDP talks a big game. I'm sure they'd still cut some things that, you know, they said they wouldn't or whatever, you know, if they were elected, like it's, it's just the reality. Like the point of this isn't like, I mean, I will happily say, do not vote conservative, never vote conservative, please. But the point isn't really that it's, it's that no matter what, like education, like no matter who's in power, it really only has been the liberals and conservatives. Like if you look at Canada's history or a party that was basically them and called something different. Um, but it, it, education just keeps getting cut and it, it doesn't make sense to me because especially like I've been, you know, over this past year, it, more so in the post-secondary, like I've been learning a lot more about, you know, how things work. I w- worked fairly closely with the, um, the office on campus that, is in charge of offering like training and workshops and and keeping profs up to date with their teaching skills. That office, which is the center for excellence in learning and teaching. I love them so much. Everyone who works there is so passionate. And so like, like every time that me and the other people who were working, you know, my, my friend MJ and other folks came to them with like, Hey, we have this idea about something to make, you know, online learning better in the pandemic. They were like immediately, how can we do that? Like, let's look at what you've like, look at that study that you did and change things like, but they're working with the budget that they're given and the budget sucks. <laughs> and it, it, it's, there's only so much they can do. And that brings me specifically to my, my gripe with Ryerson. Um, when I was on the board of governors last year, I'm so glad I'm off it now. Um, one of the last things that we had kind of come across with no notice out of nowhere, the PC Doug Ford government, provincial government said to universities, Hey, we're going to, cause everything is regulated by the um, 
Ministry of Colleges and Universities. So whenever the university increases their tuition, the call, the ministry said, you can do that. They can't just do these things on their own. Last minute, budget's already been passed. Budget gets passed in like, you know, it takes months and gets passed in February. In April, I want to say, um, the government said to all the universities, hey, by the way, if you want to, we'll just let you increase out of province tuition by 3% just for shits and giggles. Literally no reasoning, whatever. Um, and I was like, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, we're not going to do that. The budget's already passed. Well, guess what, everyone? You've got a 3% tuition increase coming in the 2022 year if you are an out-of-province student. And um, it was really frustrating because I was sitting in that Board of Governors meeting and I voted against it. Uh, I will say I'm the only person who voted against it. Uh, it was one opposed, one abstain, and the rest in favor. Um and I would encourage you to send emails to people if that annoys you. Find, Look up the Ryerson Board of Governors and email people and be like, how dare you have voted for this increase? Um, because it was completely, you know, it, it showed that we have no problem throwing Preston out the window when it benefits us. That was my main problem with it. But just because it was such a last minute, you know, like we would never have just added a random expense to the you know budget even if it was an important one at that point but we were happy to charge students more at the last minute and but it was really tough sitting there because i know that some of the people who voted in favor were like we don't have a choice right like the government isn't giving us more funding this is the only way for us to get more funding and i challenged them on that and i said this was right after we sat through like a presentation about how they're like increasing their fundraising goals. So it was very hypocritical for them to say that there was no other way to raise that funding. I was like, how about from that, like billion dollars that you plan to raise over the next, however many years or whatever. Um, but I do get it right. Like universities are like, we have the government gives us so little, we can't not increase our tuition because, you know, inflation and, Every year, students expect more from the university. Like services can't just stay the same; they have to improve and get better. More staff need to be hired, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, when the government says you can increase tuition on out-of-province students, like I get it. If I was, if I took apart, took all the parts out of my head that had like morals and ideals and stuff, yeah, that's the right choice to do: raise tuition because you need the money. I still think that we could have done without it. And I will, I wrote a whole speech. I was very upset when I was the only person who voted against it. I was really, I was pressed. Also, you don't, you don't want a university to be run without morals and ideals. Well, exactly. You know, aside from anything else. That, that was my point. Right. And someone in the meeting responded to me and said, so something along the lines of like, um, I, I don't want to misquote them or whatever, but it was something along the lines of like, look, this decision, we don't have many choices, but we all have to make sure that we keep this in mind when we vote next, you know, next time that the provincial election happens. And I was like, it just sucks that that is like, I, I, and also like knowing that out of the likely options to win liberals, conservatives, they're both going to cut the budget more. So it's like, that's not really going to change anything. And that was part of what it was in my head. But I was like, yeah, like the government doesn't give universities much choice, but to raise tuition fees. Like even if that specific one, that 3% increase could have been completely like we could have just done without it. And I think we could have, 
it's not like we can just sit here and never raise tuition and also never get more money from the government, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's not possible. And they could probably make do with sponsors for a couple of years filling in that gap. But eventually it's like, yeah, the government either needs to start paying a lot more and invest in the future of the, the province, regardless of what province it is, or students have to pay more. And we're just going more in debt for our own futures, which is the reality that we're currently stuck on. <laughs> I think this is really part of a, a, a greater trend of moving toward privatization of a lot yeah. of public services. Um, I, and because, maybe you can answer this, but where does that myth come from that privatization? Like, let's start like, cause I don't really even know, like who started that thing that says privatization is better. I, okay. The, the thing I, that's like an economics thing. And the, no. the issue with a lot of <laughs> economics is, is that it is not built on any kind of empirical evidence. Um, and like becoming from a science discipline from psychology, that really, really bothers me whenever I'm looking at economics, I took an economics course and I was like, you're just saying all of these things like they're true and there's nothing backing them up. Um, a lot of economists, actually Thomas Piketty in Capital in the 21st Century talks about this and it's considered a seminal economics work for the 21st century. He talks about how he was, a, he's French, uh, but he was a Harvard economist at one point. And he, he said he could not continue to, to be in an, like an economics academic in an academic economist in North America, because it's just all cloud castles. People have an idea of how the world works. They have an intuition and they just treat it as though it is true and ignore any evidence to the contrary. Um, and and that's, that's the intro to the book, which is what convinced me to keep reading it. Um, Sounds like so a good I, book. I think that's a lot of it. People have these ideas um, that kind of seem intuitive and then they just never test them. So if, if, if you're thinking about it without considering any external evidence, then maybe it kind of does make sense that a private enterprise with someone in a position to make money from it will have an incentive to do a good job so that the people who are making money can make more money. Um, and in a free marketplace, honestly, though, I don't that doesn't even make sense to me, like even separating all of the other things like my morals, my ethics, whatever, whatever, whatever. That does not check out like I don't see how. Put, putting someone with no. Um, like no, um, what's it called? No accountability measure is better than someone who has accountability. Yeah, because and I mean, the, the Doug idea... Ford sucks, but at least we can vote him out one day. The idea in free market economics is that the accountability is in the market, you know, and people vote with their dollars, but obviously that's not true But that's in not reality. for education, right? Like, oh. like, the free market doesn't work for education because you have to get an education these days. Hundred percent. Like that's that's where a lot of it falls apart. Where I know I know I'm not arguing this yeah. to you. I'm just saying like it's like I cannot find a logical path to saying that privatizing health uh, healthcare. We're going into another topic. Privatizing education is going to make it better because like you have to go to elementary school and high school like legally, and then if you want to not die of because you 
had nowhere to live and no food to eat, you have to go to university these days, at least if we're talking about in Canada or college, you have to do post-secondary. So like, if you don't, it's going to be a struggle. Yeah. You maybe won't automatically die, but (laughs) it's a lot harder. Like it just, I don't see that path of someone saying, yes, the free market works here. I, I like, I cannot understand the people who argue that. Yeah. No, I know. And like, even if you lay out the whole thing and you say people can have different private education systems and those will compete against each other. And if one's bad, people just won't go to it. Like they also forget that people in those positions running those kinds of companies that distribute essential goods very much can and do collude with each other. That is why gas prices always go up by the same amount on the same day, no matter what gas yeah. station you're looking at. Um, same time, same second. They all, they all, it's like, oh yeah, the free market. Okay. And also the fact that there's no like law that there have to be multiple enterprises. If one gets bigger and crowds the others out, who's going to do anything about it? Not the government, because we, we don't believe in government here, you know? Um, and, and for essential, I would argue, I don't believe in capitalism. Um, if you know me, you know this, um, but even within a capitalist system, I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever to privatize essential industries. And this is evidence-based. If you look at countries with fully subsidized free post-secondary education, they have much higher rates of like not only people seeking post-secondary education, but there's higher rates of people going into the skilled trades as well, which is a problem in in Canada right now. We don't have enough skilled trades people because there's more choice. Um, There is often more economic growth. There's often like higher indicators of happiness, like satisfaction indexes, whatever. It's, It's good. It is good to have subsidized, fully subsidized free education and other essential industries You can see this if you look at facts, but if you bury your head in the sand and stick your fingers in your ears and say, no, my uh, my idea that I thought of makes sense and I will not hear it refuted, then maybe you won't end up at that conclusion. And and like the case I always try to make people because like everyone, everyone is always like, oh, don't give the government more money. They're just going to waste it. And it's like, okay, let's like, obviously, yes, the government wastes money. But first of all, are we pretending that businesses don't? How many times when I've been working an office job have I been given the whole day off to sit in a boardroom or somewhere near or on company property? Sometimes it's even a trip to celebrate people's birthdays. Like half a day. It's like after lunch, we're just going to sit around the boardroom and eat cake all day. It's like that is a waste, just like the government wasting. Like it's it's it happens every no matter who's in charge. But my thing is always like, okay. Let's say we have two hypothetical situations. Whatever service it is, we'll say it's education for today. You have a private company running education, or you have the government running education. Your vote is so much more powerful than just saying, well, I'm not going to go to that school. What if it's the closest school to you? Right? Like if we're doing this free market, every school is competing with each other, whatever. What if it's the only school that you can get to? Or what if it's the only school that has the program that that you want to take or whatever, whatever, whatever. What if good schools don't have space for more students? Exactly. Like, yeah, the, it doesn't work. You can, 
if the government is in charge, yeah, a shitty government's going to come along every now and then. But also, it doesn't have to if we were just better citizens. And all of the problems ultimately come down to the fact that democracy isn't working because, I mean, we're just bad citizens. I would say like 98% of people are horrible citizens. Education Um, is a lot of that as well, incidentally. Exactly, right? And it's not necessarily everyone's fault. It's the fact that we don't have a system, like a whole set of systems that work together to make sure that people are well, you know, taken care of health wise so that they can focus on other things and they don't have to worry about their health. You know, like for example, if you, if you don't have health taken care of, that could be what you're working for. You could be working to pay off your medical bills. Same thing for education. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say like, you know, all those different essential things that you were alluding to before, it's like all of them have to work together in harmony. And that's what I don't think can happen under like a free market is because it's all disjointed. And I mean, honestly, even currently under the government, it's, it's more disjointed than it should be. Um, Like, I, I still think that it's such a crime how like universities are so much more favored in our system. Like, there is nothing better about a university than a college. I would honestly argue that you're going to get much more money out of it. If you go to a, for most college programs, you're probably going to do better financially than if you go to most university programs. Um, It's just, we need a more like holistic approach to like education is one of the many things you need to have like a well-rounded life. Not this approach that we currently take of like, go to school, get a job, make money. It's, it's, it's not that simple. Like education also, I don't think should be like, we, we set it as such like a, Oh, once you're like 22, 25, whatever your education, part of your life is done. That's nonsense. Especially with the way the world works today. Like maybe that was okay. A hundred years ago when things weren't changing as fast, but especially the way that things are now, you cannot end your education when you're 20, 21 for some people like that is if you never take another class and i know a lot of people probably do because classes are online you know on youtube these days but i'm saying like you truly never learn anything again after 21 other than what is like handed to you you never seek out knowledge or education after that that is awful like that is not a sustainable or like health, I want to say healthy is not quite the right word, but it's just not a good way to live your life. Like we should be encouraging lifelong education, education that like you've said, is not focused on those, like, I think you said external reward systems or whatever, Mm -hmm. so that you're actually like the education itself is what makes you want more education. It's not the, I'm eventually working towards a six figure salary one day. Even even grades, you know, I, oh, I get rid of them. Like, I think there's a couple cases where they should be like allowed and they make sense. Like, yeah, you probably should need to pass an exam before you can practice like law or medicine or I mean, driving tests still good, you know? Yeah, but it's it's just like it's so it's like it's so belittling to like narrow down like, you know, all of the knowledge and all of the experiences I've been in university for seven years. I've had many experiences. 
many, most of them, I would say almost all of the ones that I've learned from is still remember to this day and use on a daily basis happened outside of the classroom. So to spend four years at a university, two years at a college, whatever, four years in high school and have it all come down to one number is like what defines you. Like real, cause realistically you graduate high school. And the only thing that matters if you're trying to get into college or university is that one number that is your average. That is what we and have decided your, your grade 12 average, not even yeah. like, yeah. I mean, 11 for applications and then 12 to actually like get Maybe. in kind of stuff. Yeah. But like the point is it's even more narrow. Like that's two years of your life, two and a half, whatever that is just like, okay, doesn't matter. You weren't there. Doesn't and count. Well, I'd, I'd still argue as well that, cause obviously like your, you know, grade nine, whatever you learned in grade nine is allowed you to learn what you learned in grade 12. Oh, no, of course. I, I'm just saying like, all of the things you learned in those four years, we try to say like this one number that is their adjuate at their average that they're graduating with their grade 12 average. That is the only thing that matters really coming out of the four years of, or in my case, you know, coming out of my post-secondary experience with seven years of like just experiences and things that I've learned that cannot possibly be captured in a number. Right. And obviously I know that, people, someone listening is probably like, that's what your cover letter is for. And yes, I know we have, we have ways to quantify or like capture those things. And I know that, but I'm just saying that education, the way that like, you know, profs look at, you know, teaching students is it's just about getting you a good average. Like there's not a lot of that crossover and like room for, you know, creativity and just curiosity that I think like everyone is so curious as a kid. And now if you, you know, like you put someone through 12 years of public school and then four years of a post-secondary degree, most people are like, I don't want to learn anything because it's just been like that curiosity and that interest in learning more has been like beaten out of you. (laughs) It has been, your um, soul has been drained. I I actually have a fun anecdote here. When I was in grade 12 in first semester, when I was taking advanced functions, you know, precursor to calculus, we were talking about basically how to get a derivative, but not quite how to get a derivative. Um, it's if, if, if anyone has, has like any derivative fans out there, drop a comment. The point here is not calculus. I don't remember calculus, but, um, advanced functions is like a lead up to derivative calculus. And when I was in that advanced functions class, I was like, it was actually the first year that I enjoyed math class also, which was cool. But I was, I was having a, a great time in that class because it's like suddenly something made sense. I don't know what changed, but it made sense. I was like learning. I was enjoying learning. And I was looking at my notes, like doing a problem one day. And I made the, the jump. It was a small jump, but I made the jump from what we were learning in advanced functions to actual derivative calculus. Um, and I, I, I told my parents and they were like, oh my God, that's so cool. I told my teacher, um, and he was like, you're not allowed to use that on the test because it would put the other kids at an unfair disadvantage. Um, forget about that until you take calculus. (laughs) And, And that is, you know, again, if we're stripping and just looking at this, like purely logically, it makes sense in the situation that the teacher would say that to you because 
the situation is just so awful that that is what you kind of have to do in that situation, right? Like it's, it would technically be like whatever, but although a better teacher could have said like, yeah, still like like a job. Yeah. It's still a dick move, but he was then surprised when I dropped out of calculus halfway through uh, the second (laughs) semester of grade 12. But I, I think that like, that is, I mean, I was in a, I was in the gifted program growing up and, uh, this is not a visual podcast, but please know that I'm rolling my eyes. I do not like that I was in that program, but I will say that the one thing that was great about that program was because we were in that program and, and I also, for people who don't know what the gifted program is, it does not have anything to do with your intelligence. There were way smarter people in the regular quote unquote, regular program. And like, I was not a genius. However, it was about like the way that we learned and the curiosity that we had for learning and stuff. So in the program, whenever we did something that out, like, like Alex was just saying, like we went ahead, we were like, it was encouraged and that was fun. Like that was when I was like, I enjoy learning. And that was also why I got called a nerd on the soccer field. But it like, that's what learning is. And for me, it was math and science at, you know, growing up, like that was what I love. Like when I found, like, I remember in grade six, before, no, sorry, this would have been, it was before the program. So like, it would have been like grade four, I guess. Uh, I remember in grade four, you know, your top three states of matter, or maybe your top before them, but we were on a lesson where we were dealing with the three states of matter. And I went on my own and found out about the other states of matter, right? Which is like um, absolute zero and like plasma when you heat things up super hot and all those. And then also things like sublimation, like skipping stages. And I was so interested. I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. There's another matter out there. And then I was like, wait, there's a fifth one. Like, I just remember being as a kid, like, wow, I just went and learned something on my own. And at this point I was still in, I I had still in just regular school, like no program, whatever it was because it starts in grade five. And I remember kind of similarly just being like told like, okay, like that's great that you learned that, but it, it forget it for now. Like it, like it was very much like, okay, do you want a sticker? Like, like there was no, like very, very few teachers I'm going to, and I also, this is grade four I'm talking about. So I probably forget a lot of it, but very few teachers like encouraged that curiosity and pushed you because they don't want me being five lessons ahead of the other kids, because that makes it harder for them to teach. And that is so like totally reasonable. You know, when you look at the bigger picture, like teachers can't manage you know, a class of 30 people, which is the size that classes are in Ontario, at least maybe 25. I don't know. Um, when they're all over the place. So like, it makes sense that, you know, everyone's got to stay on the same page and and whatever. And that's why, why it was so great when I was in this new program, I was like, Oh, I, I was in a smaller class. The teacher was specifically trained to be like, these kids are going to go off on their own because that's what they like to do. And that was such a more, as much as it was like the worst time of my life from bullying uh, because we were in the gifted program in terms of learning, that was probably the most invested ever been in my learning when I was able to do that stuff. Like there was just a topic I really liked. So I read extra pages about it and I was able to write my essay on something that wasn't really covered in class. Like that, you know, an essay in grade six being, you know, one page, but (laughs) that was like, if we can find a way and there's people way smarter than the both of us combined i'm sure who have come up with ways that for yourself 
Okay, true. You just you just got what what did you get on your LSATs? You just got a high mark on your LSATs. So we've got a genius. 78 on my LSAT. Yeah, we've got a genius among us, and it's not me. But there's people who I'm sure have come up with ways that we could at least move more towards these better ways of more holistic ways of learning. And and we just sit here and run our multiple choice scantrons over and over and, and suck the life out of our students. And it sucks. That's yeah, I, I, I was also in the gifted program um, in school, as you know, and when when conversations come up about de-streaming, um, that's really what what I end up thinking as well, because like obviously it is bad that we group kids together on this extremely arbitrary basis. And like with the gifted test, it's not even the fact that it's a child IQ test, which is like hugely problematic for its own reasons. But the question of who gets tested. um, For us, just to be clear, everyone at my school got tested and it wasn't an IQ test. So I think we may have been in slightly different programs, but okay, I was in the TSB gifted program, which is an IQ <laughs> test, and the kids who like get recommended for testing or whose parents push for testing get tested. Um, oh, okay. So that tends to be disruptive kids, kids from well-off families, white kids whose dis- disruption is is seen as um, an active mind as opposed in, yeah, to yeah enthusiasm as opposed to being a child delinquent. Um, anyway, the the all of that aside, it does. It has smaller class sizes. It has more um, more freedom on the part of the teacher, and like that is what we should be pushing for with de-streaming. Instead of taking like exactly. the elitist programs we have and pushing everyone down to the the level, like the lowest level that we can can give them, we should be bringing everyone up, and well, that and just I requires also think- more resources. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is controversial to say, and also, you know, obviously I'm speaking only from my experience. So I don't, if other people had, you know, an awful experience because of streaming, I'm not saying that that didn't happen. I'm just saying, speaking from my experience, I, I have to believe that there's a way that like, cause some students are on different levels and it's to me, the problem with streaming is how, when we stream people, it's like, like we basically put people in a stream, like, Oh, you're the dead end stream. You're not going anywhere you're the stream that might be able to make it into college. And then you're the stream that's actually smart. Like that's how we stream right now. And that's obviously awful, but there has to be a way that we can, you know, put people like match people with the teachers who are going to meet, like meet their learning style. Right. So streaming based on how people learn um, streaming based off of interests, like, because my, my high school, I don't know if it was a thing that was like widespread or whatever, but we had like a, it was some sort of specialization program that schools could be a part of. And if you offered certain classes, you could, and you then as a student took those classes, you would graduate with your high school diploma, but you would graduate with like, we called it schism, which must've stood for something, but it was a specialization. And my school had business, for example, things like that. That's great for people who like, want to go into it. But I I think the problem with streaming is the force that we kind of apply to it. It's like when you get to high school and obviously this then creates another problem of people have to choose even earlier in their life where they might want to go, which obviously is bad, but there's gotta be, there's a way to do it. Other countries have done it well. The force Um, and also the value judgments. Like exactly. Like 
like I said earlier, like nothing about university is better than college. It's different. It is for something different. There's also nothing bad about going straight into work out of high school. It's different. There's also nothing bad about being better at some subjects and worse at some or exactly. like and having different learning styles. And, and we, yeah, exactly. And I think that's another place where streaming fails is often it's like everything you're in that category, like all of your subjects, you're in that stream. And it's like, well, no, why can't I take like, you know, advanced biology and then like really low level calculus if it's just not something I'm interested in, you know, like it's, and it's something that I want to have, but I don't, I don't, learn calculus very easily. So I'm going to take it at a lower level. Like it, I don't know. I just think that I agree that probably the easiest solution for the streaming is to just de-stream because realistically we're not getting out of capitalism anytime soon. And so all of these problems aren't going to change. And so to fix the problem that often, you know, students with like probably developmental disabilities um, or learning disabilities, or like you said, students who are just for racist or otherwise reasons are, you know, pegged as the problem child. I think getting rid of de-streaming makes sense because those students are being, you know, horribly impacted by, by those things. But But I I wish that while increasing funding also, that's a huge part of it. I I think just like de-streaming, but like creating new streams that aren't necessarily streams that you're stuck in, but it's like, you know, I can choose to, take a more visually taught calculus or a more like, you know, lecture style. Cal- like, I don't know. I just think there's so many different ways that we could not lose people. Cause there's so many people who are smart and just aren't being taught the way that works for them too. Right. And we didn't even really touch on that. And I know we are way over time and I'm again, going to have to cut things out probably of this episode, but it just, it just sucks that we don't take a more like holistic approach and that kind of the way that you know, capitalism runs everything is that we've got to just, well, I don't think we have to, but we've chosen to focus on, yeah, it's just about how much value you can provide to a future job. Yeah. But starting the conversation is the first step toward, toward changing that. And at least critically considering what, um, you know, our pasts and if we have kids, what we want their futures to look like, and just looking at the systems all around us with, 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 with less automatic acceptance and, and more of an idea of things could be different. I think that's a, the, I mean, yeah, that's the first step. And I, and I think something that's hard for students often, and this is my last thing that I'll say, um, it's hard to fight for something that won't impact us because as post-secondary students, anything that we get changed, ultimately we're not going to see, right. We're gone so fast unless you're me and you take seven years. Um, but I really would encourage anyone listening, like email your program chair or like when your prof is talking about like what style you prefer, like, cause some profs are super open and they say like, what kind of evaluations, like, do you want on your midterm? Like, do you want it to just be all multiple choice or whatever chime in, like send them an email. It doesn't have to be out loud in class or, but like send your program chair, send your Dean. Like if you have an opinion, even if it's different from what we had, or it's just something about how you think education could improve, whether we touched on it or not here, like tell someone, just pressure someone, show up to a meeting. Like when you get an email saying like, Hey, the faculty's voting on, you know, how to whatever. And students are invited to give their opinions on it. Go to that meeting, 
change something because especially, and if you are in first or second year, you actually could see the benefits of that change. Um, but if not, then like, I mean, don't not, don't not do it just because it won't benefit you would be my message, which I know is really hard to say because there's so much going on, but. But, but like, yeah. if, if all else fails, do it out of spite. Don't let them keep getting yeah. away with the same things. Yeah. Screw capitalism. <laughs> well, we've definitely gone over our time. Um, you can clearly tell why we made this uh, a special mini series because there's lots to talk about. And I also think that it's just, it's something that is so big in our lives and has been for the last couple of years as post-secondary students. Um, also post-secondary students who have been very involved, who have run for their students union. And on that note, um, very excited <laughs> slash, uh, scared to say that our next episode um to cap off our three-part education series uh will in fact be about student unions and probably very specifically the ryerson students union because for some reason they have not changed their name yet even though every other group on campus has they are still called the rsu um but i'm sure we'll talk about that many other things um and we'll be talking about the ways, and it, it's not just going to be, I will say, get, get ahead of it. It's not just going to be us complaining about how we did not win the election. That is not the point. What we are going to focus on is because, you know, the election's passed. We did not win. It is what it is. We're going to focus you know on. Us, you also know that we are probably <laughs> happier for not having won it. I mean, I think if you know the RSU, like you know that we're happier, like, just objectively, we could not be as happy in that position as we are outside of it. But all that aside, um, we're going to be talking about ways that people will probably talk, touch on, you know, how to actually get involved, run for it, whatever. But going to be talking about how as students, just your regular day to day students, what we are and what we're going to be <laughs> um, talking about how you can get involved in making the RSU fight for us a little bit more um, because that's definitely something that I think at least, and I believe Alex feels the same way has been missing from the students union is they have not really fought for us in the last couple of years. So we're going to be talking I, about that. Yeah. I mean, if the RSU were fighting for us, let, I mean, no, I was going to say if it were fighting for us less, they would be actively fighting against us. But I also can't like sincerely say it's not doing that already. So. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> oh, they already are fighting against yeah. us. And I have, we've got some receipts on that. But we'll, we'll get into that next time. <laughs> yes, you have lots to look forward to. Um, in terms of the schedule, um, we are recording this and posting this on the same day. Uh, so this is going up on the September 14th, which is Tuesday. Um, all goes well and nothing hits the fan. Uh, I'm trying to not swear in this episode, so I have less editing to do since we're pushing this out tonight. Uh, next episode will also be up September 29th, the final week of September. That is when we will be aiming to release this. So you have that to look forward to. Um, as always, um, I've been David. I have also been joined by Alex. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you. Bye.